Hey everyone, this is Michael. In this Insight episode, we have an excerpt from a conversation I had with John Parker. John is a sociologist of science and currently a director within the Division of Social and Economic Sciences at the National Science Foundation. John studies scientific research programs as an example of what he calls coherent groups. In this episode, you'll hear us talk about these groups with particular emphasis on the Resilience Alliance, a group that both he and I have been involved in. So let's let's take a step back and say yeah. that these groups that we see in science are part of a broader phenomena that we see across all different kinds of social fields, creative groups that become um, self-determined and create a path for themselves in, in new areas. Um, cults are those groups in religion. Coherent groups are those groups in science. Entrepreneurial groups are those groups in business. Steve Jobs had a business cult. Yeah. And so cult is, a, is generally a pejorative term, right? And so, there, and so is the adjective cultish. Do you think that there's a, a danger of, of cultishness in science and say worship of say celebrity oriented intellectual leaders? Worship of intellectual leaders, worship of ideas, right? right. I mean, this is something that has been critiqued in the Resilience Alliance, right? Um, that it's, it's dogmatic, that people are um, proselytizing, right? That it's, it's, it's church-like. You saw the same thing with the Skinnerians in Columbia. That was called a cult. Um, their outpost at Arizona State was called Fort Skinner, where they would battle all the other psychologists. Um, Can you say yeah, a bit more about that, John? Sorry, I don't think people are going to be able to follow you. Yeah, so B.F. Skinner, people probably know, is the famous behaviorist in psychology. Um, pigeons, uh, boxes, those kinds of things. Um, he created essentially what you could call a scientific cult, a coherent group that created uh, Skinnerian behavioral psychology. They had their own journals. They had their own meetings. They had their own rituals. And they created their own scientific outposts around the country where they could champion their cause, push the movement, and defend it from outsiders. My home at Arizona State was one of those places. The sociology department was actually based in the lab where they had the rooms where they did the behavioral studies. It was in the 60s they used to do it. So across fields, you also see these groups pushing science in a way that is dogmatic, and it wouldn't work otherwise, but sometimes they push it too far. I mean, I guess that depends on what you mean by too far and what the current state of science is. Yeah. I mean, something that I've struggled with, I mean, I have struggled with some of the intellectual content in the Resilience Alliance, even though I have this deep, I would say both emotional and intellectual bond to the material and the people, it has felt like there's a lot of, a lot of the papers feel kind of a empirical. There's these broad kind of highfalutin concepts of panarchy, et cetera. And it's, I don't, if there's, it felt like there's this implicit idea that the younger folks should be the, can go out and measure this stuff. And it's like, well, that's actually really hard to do. Well, you see this dynamic, Craig Allen is trying in a lot of these groups. The first group creates the edifice, right? It creates, the, the, the broad framework. Think about Jesus with basic principles. Think about um, Niels Bohr outlining the, the beginnings of quantum physics. They paint these huge, broad pictures and beautiful strokes of these grand ideas, and then they leave the next generation to fill it in. It's what Kuhn called normal science. It's the mopping yep. up work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it feels hard to avoid. What was that, 1962, the structure and something of scientific revolutions? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's and something, I mean, I'm reminded of that because it feels like a lot of what we see is one paradigm being replaced just with another one. So people will be, so people will criticize one paradigm. Like, oh, you know, mainstream neoliberal economics, that's, that's just dogma. There's no such, you know, it's just a whole bunch of comparative statics with artificial curves, blah, blah, blah. And then like we replace that with our own adaptive lingo. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, I've, I've heard people in resilience debate and there's online debates with some of the central resilience folks and with scientists in political ecology and they're going back and forth and back and forth and they're just talking past each other. Um, they're coming yeah. from precepts, the basic epistemological assumptions of what they're trying to accomplish are different. In some sense, it mirrors the current political situation in the US. You just, there's no common ground. Right, absolutely. Yeah, it's just this, this, these norms of mutual dismissiveness. Yeah, so something that, that, that in my own um, scientific cult associated with Lynn Ostrom, right, we, there was one of the things that I noticed most strongly with her passing was just how difficult inter, the, the loss of leadership can be and intergenerational transfer of norms, right? So you mentioned that the, the, resili the RA, the Resilience Alliance, is not the same anymore. And so I wonder whether there's some inevitable struggles um, when inevitably um, leaders retire, uh, at least. So, so how much of this is kind of the inevitable challenge of intergenerational knowledge transfer and norm transfer? Is that, is that part of this like life cycle idea that you're talking about with respect to the Resilience Alliance? That's certainly part of it. I mean, part of it's biological life cycles of humans and the replacement of some people. Um, there are certain roles that are um, crucial and irreplaceable. Think about someone like Buzz Holling. I have a quote here about Buzz, in fact. Um, I'm writing and I say, you know, specific social roles are crucial for coherent group dynamics and the loss of key roles diminished RA's creative capacity. Most critical was the retirement of Buzz Holling, um, the intellectual leader, charisma, enthusiasm, lent courage and ideas to the group. As one of the core RA members told me, a lot of that came from Buzz, to be honest. He was a creative genius that would pose the new ideas and those shoes are really difficult to fill. That kind of creativity at the paradigmatic level that Buzz was able to create these intriguing ideas is difficult to replicate. So having someone like Buzz, having that intellectual leader, um, the emotional leader of the group, someone who also gave the rest of them courage, who gave them uh, empathy and who allowed them a voice is absolutely central. And when those things fall apart, uh, the group often falls apart. Same with the organizational leader. And I think um, the RA has struggled with that to some extent too, uh, with Brian retiring and other people trying to step up. So is there some inevitability here? Or just, you talked about the kind of, you know, so the biological life cycle of people, which of course we're all intimately familiar with. Is there an organizational life? Well, you said that there kind of is. So are we yeah. gonna have just like, you know, one's going to come up and, and that's going to trough and then some, another one's going to kind of come up and maybe take its place. Is that, is there a broader narrative there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the hounds are ever after the hares and other groups, other new um, upstart groups come and try and, and, and argue and fight with those who are in charge. And one of the main challenges of upstart groups like the RA is once you have a successful revolution, um, where are you at right now? You become... Um, the fastest gun in town and people come and start shooting for you. Right. That leads to part of the creative decay of the group, um, something I'm calling drama and defensiveness. So the group winds up engaging in these kinds of uh, conflicts with other groups in a competitive kind of competition for attention space, for journal space, for resources. Um, and in that process, first of all, those groups um, air cogent criticisms of each other that weaken their perspective. And second of all, they lose energy fighting each other rather than trying to propel the movement. So it's one of the dynamics I see that links the group to the field um, that starts to create this process of creative decay. In addition to the enlargement of the group, 
in a way that loses the small group processes, the emotional feel, um, differences and divergence among the group as it gets bigger. What do the different Resilience Alliance nodes need and want? What are they willing to do? Those things became different over time. Um, also, as you mentioned, the difference between the younger folks and older folks, this degeneration process whereby um, the people who come later aren't as emotionally wed to the ideas as those who created them, and they're more right. willing to challenge them, and that creates conflict in the group. They're also um, not as happy doing the mopping up work, doing the shop work, trying to actually measure these things on the ground where the originators were able to uh, create these huge pillars of, of theory, um, their job is not that. And sometimes that also doesn't feel so good. You mentioned that you're writing a book. Remind me, I mean, so the, is the book gonna be focused a lot on the Resilience Alliance and these dynamics? Exactly, yeah. So right now, in terms of the RA, I have a couple, three projects I'm working on. One is a paper that's just about creative decay in these groups and how it happens using the RA as a main case, but also looking at other groups in science. Another one's gonna be on the rays and the relationship between the rays and the senior RA. And thinking about this tension in science that Kuhn talked about between tradition and innovation and how that plays out in those groups. And okay. then from full book perspective, so I'm working on right now, I'm gonna send it into Chicago, been in, talking to the editor there, no contract, um, but the idea would be to write a full book about the entire life course of the RA, but then do comparisons with other groups. Wow. Yes. And so for folks who don't know the Rays, I think I used the term earlier too, Resilience Alliance Young Scholars. And so that's how I got involved. Was that how you got involved too, John? Or were you always, was it kind of, it was for you a, a, a unit of study only? I got involved as um, I got a fellowship from the National Science Foundation. And the focus was in urban ecology. They picked out several PhD students from several different fields and got us to work together to look at urban ecology from inter interdisciplinary perspectives. <clears throat> involved in that was Chuck Redman, Nancy, uh, Nancy Grimm, Ann Kinzig, folks that had direct ties to the RA. Um, so I got involved in it that way. I met Buzz in 2001, 2002, and then I turned RA into an object of study after I spent the summer of 2003 there working in Kale's group. And I saw what was happening there. I, I realized the rituals they were having, the dynamics they were having is not something that we see a lot in science and started to follow the group at that point. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, yeah, you're, a lot of what you're saying is, has resonates with how I felt about the Resilience Alliance for a long time. I, I tell this story a lot, but when I first got into grad school, I had a dean show up and talk to a bunch of the, the first year PhD students. And she said, you know, you're about to embark on a monastic, a monastic experience. And I think she meant it positively, but it's, to me, it sounded not like not a lot of fun. I was like, I don't want to be a monk. I want to talk to people. And, and I, I actually, thought about leaving grad school after the first year, year and a half before I got involved with Lynn and her workshop. And it partly was because I was being trained to be a technocrat, but the other part is that it was, it felt socially isolating in the way that you feel is a stereotype of PhD education a lot of the time. And so it was to move from that from to this more of a workshop environment really fed me in ways that of course, before you're fed, you don't sometimes know, know that you're hungry. Exactly. And working with people like Lynn puts you in a different position. I mean, think about the people, um, think about the rays that are in Stockholm. Yeah. About the benefits that they reap from being in that position and that you reap from being close to Lynn. Absolutely. Right. I mean, there's gravitas. You're associated with a Nobel Prize winner. They're associated with the highest, you know, ranking ecologists in the world. Um, the networking opportunities, the access to new ideas. 
um, mentioning these things in NSF matters. I was in a, recently at a, uh, a, uh, a panel and someone said, well, you know, these people know the main folks that were involved in the RA and that mattered in that panel for getting potentially thought about for considered for, you know, these things are considerations. It matters. They propel you. These groups and, and Lynn's group and the RA are, are like trampolines or catapults for scientific careers. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of it is, it's about legibility. I go back to that a lot since reading, and I've mentioned this, James Scott in his book, Seeing Like a State a lot in this podcast, right? But it's, none of us are going to have the time to have in-depth conversations with most people. So we need these markers of authority and prestige. And so we use them. And that's, to me, that's what you're talking about. It's, it's, I can read your grant proposal, but I also kind of want to know like who's the team and who's on it, et cetera. And I know there's a debate in terms of like how much attention should be paid to that. Sure. I mean, down to the level of citations, citations have an emotional pull when you read something. Hmm. Yeah. There's this one question that's nagging at me is like, what's the implication of being sensitized to all these dynamics? Because I felt for a while, I've always shaped at this idea that science is, and no one's kind of imposed this on me. So maybe I'm just projecting, right? There's, there's a pseudo, pseudo narrative I have in my head that people think that science is a meritocracy. That, you know, this, the idea of the lone genius gunslinger kind of going out there, you know, writing their book, whatever it is. And there's this, like, sometimes it feels like, at least superficially, this ferocious denial of how incremental knowledge production actually is. But I don't really, like, you know, I want to have this discourse. I want to change how we talk, how we evaluate each other. But in terms of, like, practical implications, uh, there I falter a little bit. Because I think it's important to have these sensitivities when we're engaging with each other. And maybe that's, I mean, that's important, you know, changing how we respond to each other. Because I feel like sometimes we talk about how do we change things? We actually undervalue just all of the little small interactions that we have day in, day out. You know, but what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's several. You mentioned several things. Um, one is the idea of the lone scientist. And it's just, it's patently absurd. Every one of us uses everyone else's ideas. And the minute we come up with an idea, it's open to the community. It's like an IPO. Um, science is communalistic in that sense. Secondly, we're all connected to other folks, and that's why we make it. Um, the folks that make it in science are those that are best connected to strong, high-status mentors. If you want to make it in science, you better find a strong mentor. Most folks don't. What we know is that science is incredibly stratified. 80% of the publications are produced by 20% of the scientists. 80% of the citations are to 20% of the papers. This 80-20 rule is law-like across fields and across science. The real interesting question, one of the interesting questions to me is, are people at the top the best? And what does the best mean? You're, you're, let's, let's take you, you do good science and you're related to Lynn. And I, I take you to be one of the leaders in your field. I haven't studied your field, but I'm imagining that you're among those folks. Just having an editorship and doing this kind of thing shows it. Most folks don't. Most folks just teach. Most folks don't publish past their dissertation. So you've worked with Lynn, who's a cutting edge person. You have good ideas, you have good networks, um, and you're there by virtue of those things. I'm gonna say it's not because you're brilliant. You're a smart guy, I'm a smart guy, but most of this has to do with the resources that we get in our careers. Mm. Um, what does good mean then? Does good mean what you are because that's where the good ideas are? Would good be something else if someone else made it there? what does good mean in relation to the current state of knowledge? I mean, good is what the experts say good is to some extent. Um, but, it's, but you're questioning the criteria by which we evaluate who's an expert in the first place. 
Right. It's an interesting question, right? Because you are at the top, you get to define what excellence is. But at the same time, there's other ways it could have gone if other folks would have gotten there. It's self-perpetuating, it's path dependent, and we get here because our mentors were good and then we get access to the things that make us have good career. Yep. Yeah, I'm reminded of this idea of the Matthew effect, right? Where it's essentially just the rich get richer, the cited get cited. Accumulative advantage, exactly what Merton called the Matthew effect. Yeah. The last couple of years I've assigned this book, The Secret to Our Success by this anthropologist, Joe Henrik, and he talks about, you know, human beings are social learners, but if you're going to be a social learner, you need to figure out who you're going to learn from. You don't want to do it randomly. You don't, right? So learning and cooperation have this very strong commonality. You're only going to do it effectively if you do it in a biased way. I want to, I want to learn from whatever the best is, and I want to cooperate with people who are going to cooperate with me. If I do either of those things randomly, I'm going to be in a bad way. Well, okay, that means for social learning, I need to figure out, you know, who should I learn from and who has the prestige to be a marker of that type of individual. So we've got arguably built into our psychology, this idea that we should pay attention to some folks and not others. Right, right. And, and what you're talking about has implications in two ways at the individual selfish level. And I did this during my dissertation. I said, who are the best people in this university that I can get on this dissertation committee? And, and I consciously did that. So we can move ourselves in that direction, like flowers turning to the light towards the resources. Um, at a broader scale, the way that I'm forced to think about it now, and I think about it anyway as a sociologist, but as someone who's now husbanding resources for entire fields, um, how do I distribute those resources in ways that work against this tendency towards path dependency and careers, but at the same time facilitate good science? I don't want to fund folks that are poor scientists and aren't going to produce good science, but I want to fund folks that have the potential to be good scientists and produce good work who wouldn't get funded otherwise. Right. 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 So for you, it's a forced decision. It's because it, you actually have to decide what you do about the answer to that question, who is good and who isn't. I think one thing that people don't think about at NSF is articulation work. We call it sociology of science articulation work. When you get into these positions or if you become, um, let's say a panelist on NSF panels, you can shape the way that science gets funded. You can shape solicitations, the way they're drafted. You can shape priorities inside these organizations. You can feed your communities. And so there's all these interesting dynamics of, of, of uh, the sociology of science and this broader ecosystem of, of funding. And this gets back to the idea of the lone scientist in their lab, in her lab. Think about the funders, think about the panelists, think about the program officers, think about all the women, it's mostly African-American women in NSF who are supporting and doing all the administrative work that make this happen. Think about the guys cleaning the toilets. None of this stuff would happen. That woman would not be in her lab doing this stuff without all of these people. Yeah, in a previous interview with uh, Roel Pacheco Vega, we were talking about um, invisible work. Just to see, you kind of know it, but you then they don't, by definition, it's invisible. So the sea of invisible work that actually has to get done and right, and now we're calling it essential work in the COVID days. Right. But it turns out there's, you know, there's no fungibility there. It is essential. Okay, we're gonna leave it there, folks. You can find the rest of the conversation in the full episode. You can find our episodes on pretty much any podcasting app. And you can also now find us at our new website, incommonpodcast.org. Here you can find all of our audio content, including a series of methods webinars that will be a part of the podcast moving forward. The site also hosts our blog, which we use to post about content related to the show. Please feel free to contact us through this site with any suggestions or ideas you have. We'd love to hear from you.